Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here with Rick Ridgway. Rick, how are you doing? Uh, you know, Josh, I'm great. I'm having a really good day. Hope you are too. I am. And uh, especially because I've been looking forward to this ever since seeing you give the talk. And it was this phenomenal talk about a phenomenal life and a memoir. And your book is just coming out. I'm going to read, if it's okay with you, a bit of your bio for listeners who don't know you, and then hopefully get to hear some of your stories. Because when I first met you, first, I was like, what a personable guy and friendly. And then not long afterward, I was in a room full of people with tears in their eyes multiple times. And sometimes there's tears of happiness and sometimes there's tears of, of um, a lost something. And I was going to say how your stories about the, about the Himalayas and K2 and Peru and Patagonia and surfing in Southern California and sailing to Tahiti. But just before we got on, or just before hit re- record, we were talking about writing. And I forgot to mention, your, the writing is just flows like, like so smoothly. Uh, Rick Ridgway is an outdoor adventurer, writer, and advocate for sustainability and conservation initiatives. From 2004 until t- 2020, when he, quote, retired, he was vice president of environmental affairs and then vice president of public engagement in Patagonia. During your tenure, you worked, at, you worked with teams to develop and launch environmental and sustainability initiatives. You are the founding chair of the Sustainable Apparel Coalition, today the largest apparel, footwear, and home textile trade organization in the world. You recognize as one of the foremost mountaineers in the world. With three companions, you're the first American to summit K2. You've done many other significant climbs. This does not do justice to the stories <laughs> and explorations on all continents. Seven books, National Geographic honored you with the Lifetime Achievement and Adventure Award, six boards of conservation organizations, and now return to your passion for writing. Where to begin? I mean, you start off in your book and say that you're 72 and you're looking back. And I feel like there's a lot of legacies there. Was this book, what, what drove, drove you to write this book? Well, it, it started uh, when I was in Patagonia, the place uh, in Southern Chile, helping a buddy of mine out with a film, Jimmy Chin, uh, who is in the middle of making a movie about another close friend of mine, Chris Tompkins, the conservationist. And Jimmy and I were on our way home uh, on a long layover in the Santiago airport. And I was telling him my stories. Uh, if I remember right, it was a story about K2, about our approach to the mountain, which was a 110-mile trek. Uh, back in the day when expeditions were more like army excursions, where there was a dozen of us climbers with enough food and equipment to last us what we thought was going to be four to five months that it would take to hike in, climb the mountain, and get back out again, which turned out to be about the right estimate of time, but meant that we had tons of supplies. And consequently, I was telling Jimmy we had to hire 350 porters to carry everything the 110 miles to the base of the mountain. And then we realized that since over half of that route was through, uninhabited areas and even off trail, we needed another 50 or 60 porters to carry food for the 350 porters that were carrying our stuff. And then we realized that we needed another 15 or 20 porters for the 50 porters carrying the food that were for the guys carrying our stuff. And so we ended up with 450 porters, maybe more. (laughs) And Jimmy was just staring at me and he goes, Whoa, he said, old school, you got to start an Instagram account. So by the time we got on the airplane uh, and we'd had another beer, I had an Instagram account. I didn't even know what that was before. And then within a few weeks, I started getting all these, what you guys, what you young people call followers. And uh, 
one of them was my middle daughter, Cameron, who works at Patagonia as a photography editor and archivist of the company's culture, following her mother's footsteps. And my daughter said, Pops, she calls me Pops, you need to turn the Instagram account into a book. You've got to write out your stories for your grandkids. <laughs> so that's how it started. Uh, by the time I finished, I had 50 stories and I was going to publish them. But then another friend helped me realize that they were, of course, connected by me. They were all stories about trips I had been on, but they really weren't deeply about me. My friend pointed out that I needed to not just integrate the stories, but be more open and be more honest with me and, and with the potential readers. So I thought about that for a while and you know, I realized she was right. It wasn't as good as I could make it. It wasn't really a memoir. And, and I thought, you know, I'm 72, maybe, or back then I was just over 70. Maybe it is time to, to write a memoir. And, and that's the, kind of the long story about how it happened. But I went into a deep rewrite. And, and in that rewrite, I, I did open up. And I tried to you know, sh show the reader, not tell them. You're a writer. You know the difference between telling and, and showing. But show the reader uh, as intimately as I could, not just my life, you know, trekking with 450 porters to get to the top of K2 and then what it was like to climb it. There's a lot of books like that. I wanted to help the reader understand what I had taken from my time at high altitude and brought home to my life at sea level and uh, applied to my life in a way that I would hope uh, the lessons I brought home might apply to other people reading it, whether they're climbers or not. So that's how it started. And, and that's what I I really hope I've been able to achieve and bring to, you know, whoever might be interested in reading this book. Yeah, there are several threads of legacies in there. One big one is, well, certainly you say the people that you spent time with and some of these friendships over long, long times. And it's not just going up the mountain, but it's going up the mountain with people and, and what you learn and grow with them. There's also this seeing someone on the cover of National Geographic that inspiring, then becoming someone who's on the cover of National Geographic and inspiring others. And then this legacy of, of exploring nature and honoring nature that, and, and how that's changed over time. Can you share some of the, I feel like there's legacies that, that you want to continue, you want people to connect with. Am I reading that right? Yeah, sure. And there's quite a few things you just covered in some of the examples you gave. Um, and one of them is this idea of mentorship. And I've been very fortunate in my life to have been uh, a recipient, and I hope now a giver of um, guidance to uh, of passing the baton between generations. So, as I say in the book, I first became interested in mountaineering in the early '60s when I read in the National Geographic the story about the first American ascent of Mount Everest, and inside was a cover of. Jim Whitaker on the, the first American to climb Everest on the summit, holding his ice axe up over his head with the American flag tied to it, whipping in the winds. And I just saw that and it resonated. I just wanted to be that guy. So I did. You know, I worked at it. I, I'm a bit of an obsessive person, I suppose. And climbing became an obsession and I was razor focused on it to the point where a little over 10 years, about, about actually about 16 or 17 years after 
no, 15 years, I guess, if I do the math right, after, you know, seeing that article as a kid in National Geographic, I find myself on an expedition to K2 with Jim Whitaker as the leader of the expedition, my boyhood hero, was actually now my teammate. Uh, and the leader of the climb I was on. And when I got home uh, several months later, I got the next issue of National Geographic in the mail, and I was on the cover of the magazine. And then go forward, you know, another 15 plus years. And I was on a trip to Antarctica to attempt the first big wall climb ever done in the frozen continent, not as a lead climber, but as a filmmaker documenting the ascent for. National Geographic of two of the leading climbers of the day, Alex Lowe and Conrad Anker, climbing this huge 2,000-foot overhanging wall. And a storm came in halfway up and chased us off the wall back to our base camp tent, where around a cup of tea, Conrad said, Rick, there's something I've been meaning to tell you. Now's the perfect time. But when I was a kid, about 12 years old, I got my copy of National Geographic in the mail. And you were on the cover. And I said, I want to be that guy. <laughs> and that's how I got started. So we got home from Antarctica. And a few months later, I got my copy of National Geographic. And Conrad was on the cover. And I called him up and I said, Conrad, guess what? There's a 12 or 13 or 14-year-old girl or boy out there just now getting their copy of National Geographic. And, and guess what? <laughs> so. It's been, you know, so deeply gratifying for me, Josh, to have been in that position of uh, receivership of people who were really my guides and my influences and my mentors. And now I hope in the later part of my life, uh, I'm able to give back. It's, it's deeply gratifying. But then you also ask what some of the things are that I want to give back to a younger generation. And I think at the top of the list, would be the value. I don't, want to, I don't want to say the word benefit because that's too transactional, but just the deep value, personal, spiritual at all levels of deep engagement with what remains of the wild part of our world, with nature, with wild nature. I think that engagement more than anything has had the biggest influence on my life, has meant the most to me, uh, has overarched my passions through my entire life. You remember a minute ago, I mentioned how the book came about when I had written those initial 50 stories of my adventures and my friend challenged me to rewrite them into a, a memoir, to integrate them, to be more open. And she, said, she challenged me by saying, you know, what, what is it you want the reader to learn from your stories? What do you want them to to take away? And, and who are you at your deepest level? She really challenged me. Said, I tried to think about that. And I did. I thought about it for a couple of weeks. I went hiking uh, several times in those two weeks because that's where I think best. And I realized that the spine that's connected my life, the through line from seeing that article as a young teenager of Whitaker on the summit to where I'm at now in my life, the through line has been in the beginning it was about the adventures and the expeditions. And as you said earlier, the people I was with uh, and the places I was going, the passion for seeing these wild. And, and back then, often, 
truly unexplored places, the, the real remaining ends of the earth. And over the course of my life, it became about saving those wild places where in my youth I'd had my adventures and doing what I could with what remains of my years on this planet to try and protect what is left of wild nature. That's my through line. And so why I have made that my commitment in my final years is I hope something that any reader of the book might take away from it and uh, consider for their own life. I'm curious when you talk about unexplored nature, raw nature, and also, did you have a hand in getting him on the cover of National Geographic? No. <laughs> that happened <laughs> without you? Nothing at all. Yeah, just happened. Just got the magazine in the mail and there he was. So when you're in these places, I keep associating you because I've also heard the story from, from, I guess, Yvonne on video of this trip down to Patagonia early on with Tom Brokaw. And, um, it was Doug Tompkins. Doug Tompkins. Tom, Tom, Tom wasn't on that trip. They okay. And is it possible to share the emotion, the sense of what happens when you're in a place where no one has been? Yeah. So I've had the privilege to be in a, a few places where few people have ever been before. And I think I've been in a couple places where might have been the, the first human beings to really get into a deep little corner pocket of a region. Once I was on a, a, a foot traverse of a remote northwest, a corner in the northwest section of the Tibetan plateau. And the place had been very infrequently visited by people from the outside. And, and we knew exactly who had been through there. The first uh, European or Westerner to ever traverse that area was in 1899. Uh, and then there were a few others in the early part of the 20th century. But then there was a, a long uh, closure of this area, and it's still not really open, but we were able to go in there on foot and, and cross a section that we knew for about 50 miles no Westerner had ever seen before. And the only humans who had really been in there were a few Tibetan nomads who had probably gone into summer there to find summer pasturage for their uh, animals. But the elevation was really high. It was kind of, it was flat in most areas, but had an average elevation of sixteen to seventeen thousand feet, uh, and that was too high for human occupation. But there was still in the summer when we were crossing it, still quite a bit of wildlife, and it was really wild. And it was so wild that nobody from the outside world had ever seen it before. <laughs> and I got to feel what deep, deep wildness is like, where the influence of we human beings doesn't exist at all. And it's different. It's, there's a different feel to it. It, it sounds different. It's an ephemeral quality that's hard to articulate, but it was magical to me to, to actually feel what deep, deep wildness is really like on the planet where there's no imprint of our species because there's so few places left where you can't find any artifact of us. <laughs> you know, no matter where you go, usually at some point there'll be a jet flyover or there'll be, you know, something that you see or hear that's made by us, that's our artificial world. But I've been in a few places where those things just don't exist at all, where the animals have never seen people before and they act so differently when that when they're they're just they're curious. 
we had a wolf, a wolf came trotting across the flats right towards us. And it just walked right up to us and just stood and stared (laughs) right at us. So it's, it's things like that. And, and that's my baseline, by the way. I, um, and I try to communicate that in the book so that readers can understand what the earth was like a little bit before we got here. You know, from my travels, think that I have an ability to imagine our landscapes now so covered with our built world that I can still imagine what they were like even before we came along. I, I do in the book, I explain how I do that in the Los Angeles basin, for example. It's almost like a meditation practice where in my mind's eye, I can see what Los Angeles looked like um, 15 and 20,000 years ago before human beings got there. And so that's a, an interesting baseline to be able to have against which to then blink and look again and see where we're at now and really have a sense of what the deep, what, what the extraordinary change is that we humans have brought to, to the planet. Now, I don't advocate that we you know, need to return to living in caves, but yet what I've brought home from these experiences is the understanding that unless we human beings under, deeply commit to leaving sections of the planet wild for nature to go about its business while we go about our business in other places, that we will fail to address the extinction crisis. And with that, very closely connected to it, we will fail to address the climate crises. And there's a good chance that we will fail to provide a home planet that supports our own existence. And we may ourselves go extinct. I can see that happening, but I can also see the way out of that And a big part of that ability is being able to know viscerally what the wild world feels like and how valuable it is. You know, I I sometimes sit on Broadway and I know that it's a, uh, along a path that was there before the Europeans arrived. And sometimes I look at it and think to myself, what was it? I mean, I think you used to be able to walk the length of Manhattan and never get direct sunlight because it was all trees. And I try to imagine back to that and I don't have the access that you do. And, and it's really inspiring is not, I don't mean inspiring in the sense of, of like, Oh, I want to go off and do something, but like draws the breath out in it of what's there. And I think of what, you know, they say, Oh, if we, if we're going to have 10 billion people on the planet, here's what we have to do. And it's basically turning everything into farmland. And now someplace like Yosemite, I read in the news that you have to reserve your spot months ahead just to get access to some kind of rawness of nature. And I think a lot of people hear about my not flying, say, or avoiding packaged food, and they say, oh, this is, uh, you're depriving yourself. It's so extreme. And the more I think about it and learn of, of other ways of living than pedal to the metal of modern day, the more I feel like this, first of all, America's extreme. The, the average American not being in touch with nature seems extreme to me historically. And I'm returning back from an extreme to what feels like a birthright of, of enjoying nature. I'm just sharing the thoughts that come to mind when you're sharing those things. Yeah, I think that there's a way out of our predicament. You mentioned in my, in the, at the beginning of our conversation, giving the, the listeners uh, my biography that I'm volunteering on the boards of several environmental organizations now uh, after I've in quotes, retired from Patagonia. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, one of them is a organization called One Earth, uh, oneearth.org. And 
I'm on the board there doing what I can to help this young organization along because they're committed to, to funding scientists, the best scientists in the world, to figure out realistic solutions to solving climate change. And they're, and they're really on to something. So they have funded the science of just how much and, and when and how much and, and when we need to, how much and how fast we need to complete the transition away from fossil fuels to renewable energy. They have computed how much of nature we need to protect and reserve to let nature go about its business sequestering carbon uh, because it's better, much better at that than we are. And the work has been granular. They've now completed uh, mapping the entire globe down to a fine resolution showing every protected area that exists, what the level of protection is, what the level of protection needs to be, what the restoration needs to be uh, in order for nature to sequester enough carbon to do its part in solving climate change. And now they're in the middle of finishing the science to show how much of our production of food and fiber we need to convert from industrial practices to regenerative farming and agricultural protocols to maximize healthy soils that also sequester carbon. And, and the science is coming in that, that with just the tools in our box that we own right now, we can double down in these three areas and keep the planet to 1.5 degrees. Now, what the group doesn't address, and I think eventually they'll need to, is probably more in the wheelhouse of your area, Josh, around the necessity for all of us to align on uh, a reduction in, in consumption. So that's got to be a piece of it as well. But if we all reduce our consumption, we convert to renewables, we protect half the planet to let nature go about its business, and we change the way we produce our food and fiber, we can solve it. And the scientists have proven that now. We can keep the planet to 1.5 degrees. And we don't need you know, to launch aerosol sprays into the atmosphere and, 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 and build huge carbon scrubbers and drill thousands of feet in the ground to store carbon or launch it into space. We don't need any of that bullshit. We can do it with what we've got right now. But it will require all of us to live, and this is, again, your message, it will require all of us to think about how we go about our lives and perhaps to, to simplify our lives a little bit, as well as these other things that I just mentioned. So that's, that's got to be part of it. And you know this better than me, probably. And, and I know that's why most people are probably listening to this right now, that those changes in our own lives can enrich in our lives. Like we're not talking about going backwards. As I said before, I'm not advocating that we go live in caves. <laughs> We're not going to do that, but we can simplify our lives in ways that will enrich in our lives. And we can do these other things that I mentioned and solve the climate crisis, but we can also at the same time solve the extinction crisis. Those are the twin existential crises of our time that we're facing. And you know, another thing, Josh, those two crises, those twin crises, the two colossal crises that we're all facing, every human being on this planet, they're the symptoms. They're the symptoms of the cause, which is simply too many people, the 10 million billion that you just mentioned, that are using too much stuff on a planet that has 
a limited ability to supply the resources that we're currently taking out of it to make all that stuff and to provide all those services. Those are the, those are the twin causes of all of our problems. Too many people using too much stuff. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Yeah, I think of the environmental situation, the difference between the, the verdant, fertile world of our past and what we have today is the physical manifestation of our beliefs, of our, the values that we live. And if we don't change those, and it's not even changing, it's restoring them. Because what I think what you're talking about is simplify. Like the, one of my big messages is that it is not a sacrifice or deprivation. People think it is. I think it's very easy to say there was a, um, if we look in the past, the past, I think a lot of people look to like 1300 Europe and they think there's a black plague going around and people dying all over the place and, and they're barely eking out a living. And there's clear progress. And yeah, oil isn't so great for the environment, but it's better than coal. And coal has enabled things that wouldn't, wouldn't allow. And someday, they, maybe there'll be nuclear and then eventually there'll be um, or fusion. And then eventually there'll be like dilithium crystals like on Star Trek. And we'll just have clean energy, limitless, no problem. And if we have to crack a few eggs on the way to get there, so be it. But it's progress. And they think what you describe as living simply is not progress. But I agree that there's been a lot of progress, but we've made wrong turns. Definitely in the past, we've made wrong turns. And fossil fuels, it's a wrong turn. Yeah. And, and we don't, you know, it's not going backwards. That's what you're saying. And that's what I'm saying too. My mentor, Doug Tompkins, one of my climbing partners who founded the North Face and then sold that to found Esprit, the women's work company. And then when he became disillusioned with making a bunch of stuff that, as he said, people don't even really need, he sold it all to become a conservationist, one of the most effective in the world. He, he once told me that if you get to the cliff and you look over the edge, what are you going to do? Are you going to want to take one more step forward or are you going to turn around and go backwards? And if you turn around and go backwards, are you really going backwards or are you actually going forwards? <laughs> so that's a, that's a provocative way to think about it, isn't it? But the point is that, of course, we don't want to go back to the dark ages of the plague. You know, I'm rereading uh, the Roman Stoic uh, Seneca's letters on ethics right now. And one of the interesting things of rereading that that I sort of missed when I read it in my 20s was, you know, how he really writes a pretty clear description of what life was like in Rome, you know, under Nero in his time. And uh, it was kind of brutal. It was, it was cool for the 1%, like Seneca, uh, but it wasn't too cool for all the slaves. <laughs> and slavery is an interesting thing to think about because one can argue that 
that the end of slavery in our own country and the world uh, was really supported by fossil fuels. You know, you can make that argument. Without fossil fuels, there may not have been the number of people aligning uh, behind uh, the abandonment of, of slavery that we needed to get that out of our, our history, or at least most of it. We know it still exists. So, you know, we, I'm not advocating going backwards at all because I'm trying to be clear-eyed about what was like, life was like in the past. But we can also need to be clear-eyed about what life is going to be like moving forward if we don't do something about adjusting the trajectory we're on right now and, and avoid getting to that cliff that Doug mentioned because that's the path that we're on right now. But I'm convinced that we can find a new definition of progress that doesn't necessarily have to be built on the assumption of annual compounded growth, that there is a different future for us in uh, adjusting our lifestyles and simplifying them in a way that will, I'm just like you, convinced it will actually help enrich in our lives. And that's the path that we all need to, to get on. I know most of your listeners are probably doing that. They're certainly thinking about it right now. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm guardedly optimistic that we can, we can figure this out. And I'm also guardedly optimistic that at the end of the day, we'll have a new def- definition of progress that prevents us from going over the cliff and allows us, with that adjusted definition of progress, to continue to live enriched lives uh, that are even more meaningful than they are now where, you know, I, I mean, we can riff on this uh, all afternoon, Josh. I, I just went on my morning run where I live in Ojai, California. And I swear, I passed, I'm not exaggerating, I passed four, let me think, it might have been five parties, uh, a couple of people on their own, a couple of other couples, another group of four. Every single one of them had their earbuds in as they were hiking or running. And I would say, good morning, and nobody even heard me. Uh, Now, I bring that up because (laughs) that's not fulfillment. That's not living an enriched, meaningful life. Uh, That's progress taking people backwards. They're disconnecting. Now, this may seem like I'm segueing into going down a a different path in our conversation here, but yet all these things are very interconnected. The need to simplify our lives, to take out the earbuds, to listen to the birds, to be more connected to, to nature, to perhaps redefine what work means for all of us. If we're going to make this shift into from industrial food and fiber production to regenerative protocols, that, that's labor intensive. Uh, it requires work. That kind of food production requires a lot more work than uh, the current industry supported by fossil fuels. But can't that be really meaningful work yes. for us as, yeah. we adjust, as we adjust what work means for us? <laughs> yeah. yeah, changing your baby's diaper is work too. And we love it. And I'm going to strengthen what you said about the, uh, there's a quote that I'm putting in, in my book from a friend of mine who interviewed a guy, a fossil fuel executive. And he asked him, what did people do before fossil fuels? And he said, what apparently is commonly known in the industry is that before fossil fuels, it was slavery. That's where the labor came from. The reason we rejected slavery is not because it was economically unfeasible. It's because it was inhuman. And, but it morphed into it's not an analogy. It's like, it's actually one business. I'm oversimplifying, but you know, one evolved into the next. 
See, I, I understand. I've had that a, a similar viewpoint, but I also believe that we don't need to use as much energy as we are now. Yeah. And, and that we can simplify our lives and we can find alternate sorts of energy that, uh, that don't force us back into the caves. <laughs> as I said at the beginning, it's doable. It will, it will require some imagination, but it's all in front of us. We, it's, it's very doable. That's, again, why I cited uh, to your listeners to check out this group, oneearth.org, because, uh, you know, they are showing uh, pathways. They're showing solutions to keeping the planet to 1.5 degrees. We can do this. I'm going to share a story that uh, I don't know if this is intentional or not, how this worked out. When I saw you speak, I mean, I'm changing subjects a bit because I have to share this story. Okay. It was at the Explorers Club. And the person who introduced the person who introduced you who was this New Yorker writer. And the guy who was from the Explorers Club, and he says, at this podium, the people who have spoken are people like Buzz Aldrin and uh, Neil Armstrong and Sir Edmund Hillary. And because he's, you know, pumping up the place and, and saying how, what an amazing building and, and lecturing this is. And so you give, you give your talk. And at the end of the talk, Sir Edmund Hillary's name comes up. And I've only heard Sir Edmund Hillary. That's the only way I've ever heard it said. And I think of him as someone, it didn't occur to me how much his life and my life overlapped in time. Because I just think of him like, as, as a, like this celebrated historical figure. He was the, the first person to climb Everest. I guess uh, the first person to lead an expedition. And people are talking about him. And you just go, Ed's not a great climber. <laughs> <laughs> Which on so many levels to me was such an amazing thing to hear someone say. Because Ed, I, I only know Sir Edmund Hillary. And you're like, oh, Ed like very casually saying it and then to say, oh, he's not such a great climber. And I'm thinking, what, how can you say that about someone who went up Everest that time? And, but then you quickly said he builds great teams. And I thought, well, that's a really interesting difference and in how v- the value of teamwork. But then you also said that uh, Yvonne went hiking with him or climbing with him and he came back and said, that guy's going to get me killed. <laughs> Yeah, he, Ed was not a natural at mountaineering, but boy, did he have that ability to dig deep and uh, get the job done when, when you know he need, needed to get it done. You know, he was really, really knew how to do that. But the team, yeah, the, the team got got he and Tenzing Norgay to the top, or um, uh, yeah, to the top uh, of Everest. The Sherpa who went with him, and it wasn't just the team on the mountain, but it was all the expeditions preceding that by decades that had paved the way for them to be able to figure it out. But I did, <laughs> I did mention that because, you know, like all heroes at the end of the day, it's just, it's kind of somebody's behind that facade of the hero. That's kind of flesh and blood like you and me and everybody listening to this right now <laughs> who has their strengths and weaknesses. So I suppose I was pointing that out uh, that, you know, like all of us, he, he had his uh, weaknesses and, and he wasn't a natural climber. He's a little bit of a stumble bum that way. Um, yeah. But a, but a guy who could pull it out when the time came And he's also, look what he did with his life. You know, he um, went on to found those hospitals and schools uh, for the Sherpas and in, uh, in their home that he dedicated his whole life to that. And, and, and he did it uh, notwithstanding the the personal tragedy in his life where you know, after after setting up initially setting up those hospitals, uh, there was a plane coming in with his uh, family on board, uh, and it crashed, and he lost everybody. Uh, and he kept going forward, you know, embracing life after a loss like that. So he he he's somebody I've learned a lot from, 
is I, uh, you know, I got the opportunity to know him personally and hang out with him a little bit in, in Nepal uh, at his projects there. So uh, one time with my mother, I took her on a trek there and, you know, Ed, we, we stopped in to see him and we were hanging out for a while. And pretty soon I, I picked up that Ed was hustling my mom. <laughs> 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 and I was thinking, God, let me see where this is going to go. This is kind of, <laughs> kind of, kind of, kind of fun. But there you are. You know, he's like all of us, uh, a great, you know, a human being that was that was a, a really great one uh, with what he did with his life. Somebody I've learned a lot from. There's another thing that you talked about that I, it's so far beyond my experience. I've done athletic things where I've had to push myself and dig really deep, and I've heard people talk about it and, but from you more most clearly about how every step takes every ounce of willpower that you have. And there's many, many of these steps in a row. And I'm, I'm curious to hear what is that? Can you describe what it's like to have to conjure up the willpower just to take one step? It, I mean, I can believe it, but I can't grasp it. So that, I mean, the, the, the hardest climb for me was K2 climb in 1978, or at least the hardest climb in terms of having to mine that willpower to keep putting one foot in front of the other. We climbed that mountain without oxygen. Nobody had done that before. It was only the third ascent of K2 ever by a new route that nobody's repeated since then uh, in the first ascent without oxygen. And uh, gosh, those last 100 vertical feet, 200 vertical feet to get to the summit were ones that required me to renew my commitment at every step. I'd make one step and go, I don't know. <laughs> and then I'd have to breathe 10 or 15 times and then go, okay, one more. And I think the way I found my way forward, just doing one step and another and another was developing a habit of putting things like that in, in a larger context of uh, all the months and weeks we had spent on the mountain, where this mountain and its climb might, might fit into my life, how I would think about myself uh, and my own ability to commit to projects and see them through if I didn't figure out where to get the energy to make the next step. And uh, putting myself in that larger context all the time really, really helped out. Uh, it, it allowed me to find the wherewithal to, to keep going upward. Does that mean, if you took 10 steps and, and then did it, does that mean that for nine steps or for nine breaths, rather, you didn't want to, you couldn't, you didn't have it in you and it was developing? No, a little different than that. It, it meant that you had to really avoid that temptation to turn around and let let gravity make your life easier. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know that you just had to say no to that temptation that was in you. I sometimes tell people that it's a matter of training your mind to tell your body what you want it to do instead of the other way around. It sounds. Yeah, I just try to grasp when I row on my rowing machine. And I'm trying to go, like, it's one of the things I love about the machine is that it's the exact same machine at the exact same settings. A total novice and the best person in the, row, in the world, it's, it's as challenging as you make it for yourself. And so it's so easy to, oh, let me just take it easy for a little bit. But that's eight minutes, not however long that a couple hundred feet took. Yeah. And, <laughs> but it's similar, isn't it? You know, we're talking about similar things here. And so many things in our life, you know, any, uh, so many of our challenges are, are not that dissimilar to what we're talking about. 
you know, getting the very last steps to the top of K2 or putting in another 15 minutes on your rowing machine by developing that discipline. You know, I talked about the Roman Stoics and Seneca and those guys. Uh, I don't know about Seneca, but some of the other Stoics, that was what the, that's what, what it was about to them. It, you know, it was about figuring out how you could develop the mental discipline to uh, tell your body what you wanted it to do. <laughs> to wrap up, I, w- I want to ask, I- I'm hearing in this discipline, but also the, we can stick to 1.5. We can do this. I feel like part of that is teamwork, an appreciation of nature, a, a discovery of nature, that it's work, but rewarding work. And it says you're retired and it's always in quotes. Is that why it's in quotes is that you are inspired to I mean, there are a lot of people out there who are like, there's nothing we can do. Might as well just party or, I don't know, and not bother. But I don't hear that from you. And is, is this the why it's not retired or are you planning to climb another peak? No, I'll, I'll continue. to. I may, I may do a little bit more mountaineering. Uh, I'm an avid hiker. I get a lot of fulfillment and enjoyment from, from walking and hiking. And uh, I'll probably just see the rest of my years out doing that as long as I can put like we were just talking about one foot in front of the other, make my mind do it. But retirement's in quotes because I don't like the word. The root of retirement is retire. And one of the definitions of retire is withdrawal. And I consider in this context, uh, that definition of retirement is a kind of withdrawal from life. And who wants to do that? Um, I want to do the opposite of that. I want to, and the opposite of that is engagement with life. Uh, and I want to remain actively engaged for as long as I got one breath coming in and I'm going out. So <laughs> I, and, and engagement for me, it, it's an interesting topic because um, my own definition of engagement always includes engagement with, with nature and wilderness and wildness with the natural part of our world and the part of our world that has existed so long before we came along and will continue to exist so long after we're gone from this planet in our brief time here. Engagement with that is where I find the wherewithal to keep putting one foot in front of the other in a way that brings joy. Uh, and I think at the end of the world, at the end of the world, at the end of the day, <laughs> at the end of the day, Josh, um, and I try to address this in the book as well, or not address it, but indirectly talk about it, that, that I think my time in nature, my time in wilderness, my time on all these expeditions where I've often had to be in life and death situations, it's, it's brought home that the fact that all of us understand and know that, that we're all, of course, know that we're going to die. And that as we think that through, those of us who who really do think about it more deeply perhaps than others realize that from the moment we're born, the clocks started to tick on all of us, that our time here is, is brief and that life is defined by death. And without death, there is no life. It's the way death, it's the way life works. And at some level that is kind of absurd. Uh, you can perhaps say that life itself is, absurd because we're all preordained to die. But to me, the the secret is to recognize that, to embrace it. I use that word again, 
uh, to not turn your back on it, not be afraid of it, uh, to embrace it and face it, and then to commit to every day to find as much joy in the day as you can. This is, yeah, it, it's, um, I can't put into words better than what you just did. Your book is A Life Lived Wild, Adventures at the Edge of the Map. And is there anything I didn't think to ask or something to close with or, or was what you closed with the thing to close with? Yeah, let's, let's go out with a commitment to joy. A commitment to joy. Rick Ridgway, thank you very much. Josh, it's my pleasure. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.